Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I will be discussing all things Passiflora incarnata with Nate Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network. He's the co-founder of this amazing organization that strives to connect researchers, plant breeders, and growers to facilitate the development of perennial food crops and encourage seed sovereignty. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello. Welcome to Song and Plants. Hi. Happy to be here. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Nate Kleinman, and um, I'm a farmer and plant breeder and uh, organizer based in um, southern New Jersey, traditional Nanticoke Lenape country outside of Philadelphia. Could you tell me a little bit about Passiflora incarnata? Sure. Um, Passiflora incarnata, commonly known as passion flower or maypop passion fruit. That's the name I usually use for it. Also called purple passion flower. Some people call it wild apricot. Is a uh, native perennial plant native to southeastern U.S. all the way pretty much from Texas up to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's, uh, it's the farthest north member of the Passiflora genus, which is the passion fruit genus. Traditionally, it's a, it's a tropical plant, but uh, this is one that made the jump to our temperate climate. Very cool. How far north can it go? Like, what is the limits of its zoning? I, I think people are still discovering that. And as the climate changes, people are, people are growing it even farther north. In the U.S., I do know some people who've grown it in Maine will traditionally grow better in a protected spot, maybe along the south facing wall of a house above a stone wall, somewhere where, where the ground um, stays warm. But uh, I, I know people, people do grow them in Canada as well. And again, it's, it's really a, a protected spot is pretty, is pretty key for it that far north. Where I live, it grows anywhere. It grows like a weed. It can handle cold winters and um, does fine with our hot summers as well, being, being a passion fruit. Fantastic. So it is a vine. Being able to deal with the colder climate, does it die back all the way down to the ground? It does, yes. It's a, it's a vine. Once it's established and, and mature, it can grow 30 feet in a year. It'll climb up a tree, climb up a house, climb uh, as, as high as it can get to get to the sun. And then it will die back completely to the ground. It spreads um, through the ground. It can spread underneath a driveway. If it really has nowhere to go, um, it will send these long, long shoots under the ground. It can grow in a thicket without any support and just it, it, it will almost grow like a lawn and grow two, two feet tall by climbing up on itself. But given a chance, it will climb straight up and, uh, and just keep going until frost knocks it down. And um, at the end of the season, you can pull down the vines. Sometimes there'll be, there'll be ripe fruit on them. But in general, the fruit ripens. When the fruit ripens, it falls to the ground. So when I harvest them, I, I exclusively pick them off the ground. I never pick them off the plant. Sometimes I might knock one off, but if it falls off that easily, it, it's ripe or close to ripe. Interesting. So if it can actually produce fruit, even without a trellis, I guess that would make it more difficult for harvesting, though. 
as long as it drops fruit somewhere where it's relatively easy for you to pick them up. I have one growing in my backyard on a redbud tree. Underneath the redbud tree, there's not really much vegetation. So it's sort of the perfect place for them. They just drop right there and, uh, and they're very easy to find. At the farm, I have them growing in, a, in sort of a scruffy area. So it's a little bit more of a pain to pick them up off the ground. But at this point, they, they sort of make their own. They grow on weeds. They'll grow on the detritus of past, plant, past year's weeds. And they, they just creep along three, four feet above the ground and just dump a bunch of fruit. This year, I've, I've harvested already a couple gallons of fruit just made three and a half pints of jam the other day and um, trying my hand at some Maypop wine for the first time. But usually, uh, usually I, I just eat them raw and I, I bring them to parties and give them to people and kind of, I like to blow people's mind because they have no idea that this tropical plant grows wild here in New Jersey. Amazing. How does it compare in terms of flavor to some of its tropical relatives? You know, in many ways, it tastes nothing like its tropical relatives. It's sort of reminiscent of them, but it is much sweeter, much less tart. A, a tropical passion fruit has a sharpness to it that is just not present in this uh, in this plant. When they get overripe, which is when the when they start to turn yellow, sometimes I taste some butterscotch flavors or caramel. It's really delicious, but when they are perfectly ripe. They are sweet and tart and just amazing. You can smell the fruit through the skin before you even open it. It's really pretty intoxicating. Oh, wow. I have one in my hand and I'm smelling it right now. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And does it require the cold? I believe it does require some cold. I think that it, it needs that time to die back and then it grows back. I, as far as I know, it doesn't, this species doesn't live in any purely tropical place where they don't have, where they don't have winter. Okay. But I honestly, I don't know exactly where the Southern range ends. I imagine that it grows into Mexico, the Northern Mexico some, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. You also mentioned that it would just sort of grow anywhere. Can it tolerate part shade or is it really best in full sun? It likes full sun, but if as long as it has an opportunity to climb to somewhere sunnier, it will do just fine. And once it's established, it can climb two stories to find the sun if it needs to. And, and it can handle, it, it might not make a lot of fruit in a partially shady spot, but once it gets taller, I think uh, it can handle it. Are they self-fertile or are you best to have more than one plant? As far as I know, they are self-fertile. I've seen them. I've seen them produce fruit when there's just one plant around, but they probably will produce more fruit and better fruit if there are multiple different varieties around or multiple different seedlings around. I've recently learned that they require carpenter bees to be fertilized. So if you don't have carpenter bees around, you might not get any, you might not get any ripe fruit from them. And they do have a reputation among people who've grown them for producing um, lots and lots of fruit, but then the fruit are hollow and there's really nothing, there's nothing to eat in there. And that may be a result of pollination issues. It may also be an issue with the varieties. If they're trying to grow them here in more northerly areas, but they're growing a, a type that was originally from a farther, an area farther south, 
they might not start fruiting until very late in the season. And so the, the fruit might not even fully ripen before frost sets in. My seed company, my uh, nonprofit, the Experimental Farm Network, we sell seeds for them that come from the farthest north natural populations here in New Jersey and Delaware and in Pennsylvania. Those fruit pretty reliably even farther north from here. And when people plant the seeds from them, they're getting something new. They're rolling the dice with the, with the genetics. So I have had people plant seeds from, that I've given them that produce even bigger fruit and ones that produce even earlier. So we've initiated a breeding project to try and continue to improve this, uh, this crop, really as, as a crop. At this point, it's mainly a wild plant and a garden plant. Very few people grow it to produce a lot of food, but, but we think that they could and should, especially if, if we're able to continue to improve this uh, interesting perennial fruit. So can you elaborate a little bit more on the breeding project? Sure. Oh, and I should mention as well that it, it's not just a useful plant for the fruit, but the leaves and really the whole plant is used as medicine. It's traditionally used as a sleep aid uh, and also to fight anxiety and depression. People drink it as tea mainly, and the leaves are actually edible as well. The young tender leaves especially make a good addition to a salad or a stir fry. They're really quite mild and, and tasty. Uh, Experimental Farm Network is a nonprofit based in Philadelphia, and our purpose is to facilitate collaboration on plant breeding and sustainable ag research projects. A big part of what we do is get people collaborating together on developing perennial crops to help fight climate change. You know, every time the ground is tilled in traditional agriculture, it, uh, it releases carbon into the atmosphere. So if we're able to grow more and more perennial plants and get more of our calories from perennials, uh, we can keep more of that carbon in the ground and actually help to build soil, build the microbial life in the soil, which, which really is the, the soil's capacity to sequester carbon. So we're looking at things like perennial grains and perennial oil seeds, but also other perennial vegetables and perennial fruits, anything that can help us in that direction. So we have a website, experimentalfarmnetwork.org, where anyone can sign up to uh, post a project. Anybody can volunteer on somebody else's project. Earlier, we would send out seeds for this one. At this point now, we make the seeds available on our seed store for a low price. We, we don't have the capacity to be sending out seeds to everybody who wants them. Um, so it's, uh, it's easier if the experimenters share the costs with us this way. And then anybody can grow them themselves. And we're really just hoping that people out there who produce an interesting new variety will send some back to us so that we can continue to combine these genes and, and get some interesting ones. We, we've got a few. There's definitely been some improvements so far. And we're looking forward to seeing how much more we can get. And with Passiflora incarnata, how close to the parent is the seed? It really varies. I've seen seedlings that produce fruit that are only about one inch tall, and then some that produce fruit that are three inches tall and loaded with tasty flesh. We're, we're still figuring out how much diversity there is, but it's clear that there's quite a bit. And there's Sometimes the flower looks different too. The flower is also absolutely stunning. It, it looks like other passion flowers, but it's really, it's this frilly purple thing with beautiful petals. The, it's only open for one day. It smells fantastic. 
you know, if you cut it and try and put it in a vase, it, it just will uh, wilt within really less than an hour. Um, so it really just has to be enjoyed on the plant. But I know people who put them by their back door or by their front door and they, they enjoy walking past them every day. So if one of your growers comes across a exceptional selection, do you start to propagate it vegetatively? You absolutely, absolutely could. It's, it's very easy to, we haven't really done that yet. We've had people send us, send us small cuttings of theirs and we don't sell plants primarily. We, we pretty much just sell seeds to fund the nonprofit work. So we, um, we will add them to our collection here. And then that just increases the genetic diversity of, of the seeds that we offer through the seed catalog. So for the participants, if they do come across an exceptional selection, it's sort of left to them to continue selecting, crossing with their other maypop that they have growing? We would love them to send us a root so that we can add it to our population here. But uh, really, it's, it's to them. And that's part of our model is decentralized. We want to encourage more people to get involved in plant breeding. You know, it would be, I, I would love nothing more than to see, you know, five or 10 different Napop varieties out there being sold from the seeds that, that, we, that we started offering a few years ago. That would be great. Wonderful. I've actually read that the flowers are also edible. Oh yeah. The flowers are the whole, the whole plant is edible. Um, even the skin of the fruit, it, it's really the pulp that is the best part, but even the skin is edible and the unripe fruit can be used as a vegetable. It's a, it, it really is a versatile plant. If folks have never seen a passion fruit before, we're talking about sort of an egg shaped fruit about the size of a chicken egg for a, uh, a nice sized one. It's green. And when it falls and starts to ripen, it will become yellow and the skin will get a little bit wrinkly. That's when it's really at its peak ripeness. And then inside of it, there's a light white pith around the outside. And then there are three chambers. Sometimes it's clear that there are three chambers. Sometimes they are all uh, wadded together and you can't tell un unless you look at the, you look closely at the inside of the skin. There are a little, it's almost like a little sack of jelly around each individual seed. Inside, it's sort of, it's, it's a pale orange color. Sometimes they're just completely opaque, almost like, look like ice or something like that. Some people have compared it to a pomegranate. The pomegranate seed has a much more firm flesh around it. This is much softer. And then it's full of juice. And each of these little sacks is full of juice. So if you uh, put it through a food mill, you can squeeze out a whole lot of juice from, uh, from a bucket full of Maypops. So two quick questions about seeds. The first one is if somebody orders seeds from you, is there any process that the seed has to go through before planting it? No, um, on the internet, you, you might find sources that say these seeds need cold stratification. Um, but in our experience, that is not the case. Um, maybe that's true with some. But our seeds, we get an 80 or 90% germination rate with no treatment. We just put plant them in the spring in a regular seed starting mix or even just uh, potting soil or garden soil. We plant them and they take between two weeks and two months to germinate. The first ones will start after about two weeks. 
And then the last ones will start sprouting up to two months after you plant them. So there's some variability there. And I think maybe that's led people to believe to sort of give up on them after the first few sprout. But if you're just patient, you can get 80 or 90 or even 100% germination. They're quite easy to grow. I've had people have them flower and fruit in the first year, though it's more common that they'll start doing that in the second year unless they're in the absolutely ideal location. Fantastic. The other question is, once you have your beautiful passion fruit maypop growing and you harvest the fruit, how do you extract the seeds so that you can plant them next year to continue selecting? Well, the number one way I do it is how I'm doing it right now, (laughs) which is I open the fruit, I put the flesh in my mouth, and I pop the seeds out between my front two teeth. (laughs) It's basically, uh, that's the slowest way to do it, but it's also the most delicious way to do it. Um, But for when we have large scale, when we have a whole lot of them and it's way too many to do that and you don't have a party of people around to help you, you can just use a regular strainer and mash them around in the strainer to pop them and squeeze as much of the juice out and as much of the flesh, get as much of the flesh off of each seed as possible. And then use that flesh for jam or jelly or syrup or kombucha or alcohol or, or whatever else you want to do with it. And then the, the remaining seeds will still have some pulp on them. So then I, I like to leave them to ferment for a few days. That helps separate them. And then I just lay them out, lay it all out on a screen. Once I put it through a strainer again, I'll just lay it all out on a screen to dry. And then when it's dry, I will agitate it so that any additional flesh falls off and then winnow it off. It's pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) When you say ferment, do you add water to it? No, there's usually enough liquid in there that it'll create its own. I have some on my counter right now, leftover from making all that jam. There's probably going to be maybe a pint of Maypop wine uh, will be produced and we'll, we'll see how it tastes. Nice. How long do the seeds stay viable? They stay viable at least a few years. I don't really know the outer limit on that. I think if you freeze them, they can survive for many, many years. But we generally sell fresh seed every year. So we don't, we want people to have the best, best chance of success and highest germination rate. You mentioned carpenter bees. Do you see Mm -hmm. a lot of other pollinators attracted to the flowers? Other pollinators are definitely attracted to the flowers. Bumblebees really like them. I've seen some wasps and flies going after them. Um, They produce a lot of nectar that's really quite delicious. And I think um, lots and lots of bugs like it. But the carpenter bees are the only ones that actually successfully pollinate it. At least that's that's what I've read. One thing that's funny about it is it's a sleep aid for humans. And I think that it's also a sleep aid for bees because I have seen bumblebees taking a nap in a maypop flower or <laughs> drinking themselves drunk on the nectar. It's, pre- it's pretty cute. Sometimes you'll see two or three bees sleeping in one flower together, cuddled up. Nice. Are there any pests that attack the plant? There are. Uh, there are very few pests that can actually 
really damage it because the plant grows once it's established it grows so so vigorously but there are a number of native butterfly species and moths that really eat almost nothing but maypops uh, including one called the uh, variegated fritillary that I that I see a lot. Um, the Gulf fritillary, they're pretty orange caterpillars. Sometimes you can find a ton of them on there, but it's not a big deal because the, they, like I said, they produce so much, uh, so much vegetation. Unless you have a small young plant that gets uh, devoured by one of these, it's probably not going to cause any damage. I've seen no problem with viruses or or fungus or bacterial uh, infections it's because it's a native plant it's it's adapted to the climate here to the pests here it really just does fine oh that's fantastic do you mulch the plant at all or is it unnecessary does it prefer drier conditions um, we do not mulch it at all if you're growing it somewhere really far north or somewhere really dry you might want to mulch it but uh, where we are it does fine it more more people here want to control it. <laughs> they uh, they <laughs> somewhere where they know they can mow around it, keep mowing it because it will it will pop up right out of a lawn. Wow, I guess that would make it a fantastic option for the greens. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I have it coming up in my in my lawn right now, and I plan to uh, I plan to go out and pick some for uh, for my lunch later today. It can be eaten raw and cooked, or is there, yep, do you it, find one better than the other? Raw or cooked. If you're just putting it as an accent in a salad, you know, you, you hardly even notice that it's there. It's quite pleasant with some lettuce or some Swiss chard or something else. And if you cook it, it's just like any other green. It sort of uh, takes on the other flavors you put it. So I, I wouldn't say I, I like one way better. They're both great. Well, thank you. That's fantastic. Would you mind just going over again a little bit about your website and where people can find you? Sure. Like I said, the uh, plant breeding website is experimentalfarmnetwork.org. And the seed store website you can be uh, accessed at efnseeds.com. EFN obviously stands for Experimental Farm Network, efnseeds.com. And we have a new batch of seeds actually just put up there that the rest of our catalog launches in early January. Um, but we have put a few things that, uh, that we have fresh already ready to go up there, uh, including some native perennial flowers that do best if they're planted in the fall. Um, this one can be planted in the fall also. That's sort of what happens naturally. And at our farm, they have started popping up all over the place because you know, the, the fruits get eaten by groundhogs or rabbits and they spread them around. So they're starting to appear all over the place. And I'm happy when I see that it's one less plant that I have to plant, uh, but I can still, after a couple of years, I can still take a look at each plant and assess whether or not it's uh, an improved variety or, or one that's not worth continuing to propagate. I ordered from you last year and actually the year before, and it it's pretty fascinating to see the website. You're connecting growers as well. Mm -hmm. you, you put who has developed the seeds and sort of the history of where it's come from. Yeah, we, we like to write uh, as, as thorough descriptions as possible. And sometimes that results in 10 paragraphs about, about one seed. 
Um, and we always uh, give credit to whoever grew it or bred it. We want to make sure that that people know uh, as much as as much as we know about the origin of each of these seeds, because you know, and it, so many seed companies, you have no idea where the seeds are actually coming from, and you know, you think you're buying from a small uh, a small operation somewhere, but really they might be buying their seeds from a large multinational corporation, and um, or at least some of their seeds and. We don't operate that way. We, we try to be as transparent as possible about where all the seeds come from. We also offer a lot of things that other seed companies don't bother offering or, or hasn't occurred to them to offer, including seeds for things like maypops and maypops from, from a unique northern population or other things like that. We sell breeding mixes that are seeds from different uh, multiple different varieties crossed together. So there's a lot of diversity in the population. We sell land races, which are, are traditional um, varieties that are also have a lot of diversity. They haven't been improved through crop improvement, traditional breeding. Yeah, this is, um, it's, it's something that we, we really enjoy doing. And, and we love hearing from people who are growing all these interesting seeds all over the country and in other parts of the world. It's a real pleasure to be able to make these things available. Do you have any that are coming this year that you're particularly excited about? Mm, let's see. We have quite a few crops from, um, from the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library that we're going to be uh, releasing this year, including a, a watermelon, a melon that's uh, grown like a cucumber. It's, it's eaten when it's small when it's underripe and it, it's, I think it's actually better than a cucumber. Um, we're offering uh, beach plum, golden beach plum seeds this, this year for the first time, which they won't necessarily produce golden fruit, but uh, they came from golden fruited parents. So there's a better chance. And uh, yeah, we just have a, a whole bunch of things. You can stay tuned in early January. We'll be uh, launching them. Fantastic. And I'll put any links that you send me in the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks. So thank you very much. My pleasure. This was fun. And I hope to speak to you again soon. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, links are in the show notes. If you want to connect, head over to CarmenPorter.com.